Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today we're joined by political philosopher and author Stephen Deversa, who explains the idea of dirty hands. We ask whether it's possible to do a morally wrong action in order to do what is morally required. And other people seem to think uh, not only is it incoherent, it's dangerous, what I'm going to say. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Stephen DeVerser. All right, so what am I going to try and do today in the 30 minutes I have available? The impossible is the answer. And so what I'm really going to do is just introduce you to an idea, the idea of dirty hands, and then say a few things about it, show you how it is part and parcel of our general cultural understanding of what goes on. It's part of how we understand our moral reality, despite the fact that moral theorists think it's a very bad idea. And then at the end, I'm going to give you an actual example in Germany of something that looks like a dirty hands case that was dealt with by the law. And then I would like to hear what you have to say about what your intuitions are whether you think this is plausible, because there are a lot of people who think that what I'm about to say to you is just flat wrong, incoherent. And other people seem to think, uh, not only is it incoherent, it's dangerous, what I'm going to say. So uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, very famous philosopher, said, people who even contemplate this kind of thing show a corrupt mind. So I'm, I'm bringing you into a world of corruption here if you are with Elizabeth Anscombe. Uh, that said, it's, it's not quite as exciting as that. Uh, so, uh, sorry. All right, so let's start and see where we are. Let's start with a claim. Is it possible to do a morally wrong action in order to do what is morally required? Seems a very weird thing to ask. Sounds either paradoxical or just incoherent or just sheer nonsense. You know, it's like saying, are they married bachelors? Are they square circles? If I was to stand up here and say, let's have a chat about married bachelors, you'd be well within your rights to think he's a nutter and get up and leave, right? And you might still think this, but hang on a moment, right? So what's going on here? Why why would that view somehow make an appearance within moral theory? What's going on there? And what I'm going to try and do is paint a picture for you of why that might be plausible in moral theory, not only plausible, unavoidable in moral theory, and specifically in politics. Right, so there are different reactions to what I've just said to you. They're the moral theorists that I mentioned who are deeply worried. Not all, but most are deeply worried about what I've just told you. They think that I'm misleading you and it's deeply problematic. Consequentialists, people who think that you 
judge morality by the consequences of your actions and deontologists or duty theorists who think you judge it by your intentions and your motives agree at least on this, that I'm wrong when I'm telling you about dirty hands. Right? And I'm not going to say a great deal about that. I'm going to point you to some readings later on that you can go and free yourself. But there's a whole story to be told about why I think they're not right in their criticism of me, but I can't go deeply into it. Just take it from me for the moment on trust, trust me, I'm a doctor, right? That they don't agree with me and there are arguments against them. But I, I'm going to try a different route. I'm going to go via the literary route and the, uh, the film route and then uh, an example route and see how your intuitions go. And at the end, you might agree with me or you might agree with a the moral theorist. That would be absolutely fine. Okay, let's start off here. What does it mean to get dirty hands then? What, what's, what's a neat or at least a plausible starting definition that you can use that we can at least get a grip on and try and work through as we, as we go through this, this topic. Well, a person gets dirty hands when they violate an important moral value in order to bring about a lesser evil in moral conflict situations. That's quite a mouthful, but let me just try and unpack it a little bit for you. We face situations where we have moral conflicts or moral dilemmas. And in those situations, the options that the person who has to act have are either bad or worse, or catastrophic and abysmal, or whatever kind of descriptions you want to give it. There isn't an option of good or bad. If there was an option of good or bad, we haven't got a problem. We just do the good. Right? But many situations in life we find where our options are circumscribed either by the evil actions of other people or the immorality of other people, or just by natural circumstances. And there we have to make a decision that's a very painful one about which evil to choose, which you think will be the least problematic. But in dirty hand situations, the person who dirties his hands becomes guilty of a moral crime. This very famous ticking bomb scenario. Many people think of it as the infamous ticking bomb scenario because they think such a scenario misguides us into what we should think. But someone plants a bomb in the center of London You've caught the person who's done it. They're mocking you and saying it's going to blow up and kill thousands of people and ruin the city and financial collapse. And they won't tell you where the bomb is. There's no way you can evacuate should you torture them to try and get the information. Torture is not a little simple thing to think about. People who torture are not civilized. Torture is wrong, always wrong. Right. Punish them, yes, but you don't torture them. But in these circumstances, the evils are such that you might think of torturing. And some people will say to you, well, maybe if that person planted the bomb, they deserve to be tortured. No, no one deserves to be tortured. And even if you're worried about that, you can say, well, don't torture the, the bomber. Torture the bomber's child. Then you've got a real problem, right? Because <laughs> the child certainly doesn't deserve to be tortured. No one's going to argue that. Right? So you have that kind, of, that kind of moral crime. I mean, that's an extreme example. There are many other kinds that we can talk about, but I'm doing this rather quickly. right? What's also interesting about dirty hands is that the person who so acts also gets praised for doing what's courageous and difficult in a very difficult scenario. So it's paradoxical in that sense. You're both committing a crime and doing something good. We'll come back to that in a moment. And what's more, the person who becomes, who does the dirty hands, becomes morally polluted from the justified act of lying or betraying or using violence or something of that kind. So you have this really strange situation where a good person in a situation, does something terrible to bring about a lesser evil, is now guilty of a moral crime, and is morally polluted. Right. That's, that's pretty scary. Right. Okay, so that's, that's what we mean in a broad sense of what we have in dirty hands. Now, dirty hands occurs in all areas of our lives. 
And if I had time, I would give you examples in our private life and all the rest of it. But where it occurs most, most often and most dramatically is in politics. And, and for reasons I'm going to explain at the moment. Politics, if it's not in nothing, it's all about compromise. And when you compromise, you end up choosing lesser evils. And because you're choosing lesser evils, you end up getting your dirty hands. I'm, I'm not suggesting that all cases of dirty hands are as dramatic as the ticking bomb. You might just be involved in lying. Who thinks of politicians that don't point, at some point don't lie or dissemble or stab their colleagues in the back? You know, I'm not even talking about what's going on at the moment. I'm just talking generally, right? Politicians do all those kinds of things all the time because that's the nature of politics, or at least it always has been the nature of politics and probably will be with us for a very long time. Right. So compromise is endemic to politics and we never, never can have a situation where, well, you, know, you very rarely have a situation where in politics you don't have some kind of dirty hand scenario going on. What's more, politics also involves extrication. People pick up the messes of their predecessors. When Obama became president of the United States, he inherited two wars and an economic crisis. Not of his, own, not of his making, but he inherited them. He couldn't do the kinds of things he wanted to do, or his instincts told him to do, because he had to extricate himself from the situation that he inherited. Politics is a very much about that. And thirdly, politics is about protecting us from enemies, both internal, external, from the natural and social evils that are out there. And it's difficult to behave morally in a world where there are evil people and evil organizations trying to harm us. Sometimes you have to be, let me put it this way, you have to have means to bring about certain ends, and those means are not the best or the most moral means to get there. So you lie and you manipulate, and sometimes you use violence to get the kinds of things you need to do for worthwhile ends. So politics is the natural home, if you like, of dirty hands. As I said, it doesn't mean it's the only place, but it's the natural home of dirty hands. Let me turn to some pictures now to give you a bit of a break from all this. You find the dirty hands premise in so many of our movies and TV shows and books and all over. And I'll just give you a, a random example from recent times. Those of you that don't know what that is have not been living on this planet, right? <laughs> Millions of people are, have, have, all over the world have been looking at this. That is Ned Stark sitting on the Iron Throne. And the premise of this movie, amongst all the other things with dragons and zombies and all the rest of it, is that there you had, and I hope there's not gonna be a spoiler, so if, if you haven't seen anything of the first, first series, stick your fingers in your ears now and go la 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 for the next two minutes, right? Uh, Ned Stone is a good man and his goodness destroys him. And that's not the only problem. Being destroyed by his goodness is not in itself a terrible calamity. It is for, for Ned, but, not for, but everybody else who depended on him to be more wily and cunning as a politician are now going to suffer. And what you see in the Game of Thrones is the unfolding of his failure to some degree. Right? So there you had a person who didn't get their hands dirty, or refused to get their hands dirty, was too stupid to get their hands dirty, or too good to have their hands dirty, and calamity. All around, hundreds of, fingers in ears, fingers in ears, hundreds of thousands of people, we think it, by the died because of him, plus all the other untold misery. So there's one case where Underlying that is the premise of what happens when you have to deal with evil persons. Some of you might have seen this show, 24, Jack Bauer. 
Uh, it's, uh, the episode's 24 hours in the life of one uh, CP, CUP, well, I can't remember, some, some agent in the, in the Los Angeles uh, uh, security services. And basically, the story is all about how this poor guy, Jack Bauer, has to run around and save the world from evil persons trying to destroy it either with a nuclear bomb or with uh, uh, you know, nerve gas or something like that. And he has to do terrible things to try and prevent catastrophe from happening. Hugely popular. People seem, I mean, it, it, it's clearly, clearly exaggerated because there's a, there's a dirty hands problem every hour of the episode, right? <laughs> but, but nevertheless, it, it's, it's what seems to grasp our attention. We seem to understand what's going on when we watch something of that kind. For those of you a little bit older, my age perhaps, who are Trekkies, uh, when I say this to my students who are 19, 20 now, they look at me as I'm completely crazy. But anyway, if you're a Trekkie and you've watched Deep Space Nine, the premise is always there, and I can, I can point you to season six, episode 19. You can go and look at the YouTube one there, and you'll see the actual relevant few minutes of the clip where Captain Sisko talks about dirty hands. He has to save the Alpha Quadrant, for those of you who don't know what that means, don't worry, to sell, save the Alpha Quadrant from the Jem Gadar, right? And he does something appalling to enable that to happen. But he got dirty hands for a very good reason. He saved the Alpha Quadrant with his billions of people. Creatures, not even people. Right. For those of you that, that, that want something more classical, than if you've read Graham Greene, The Quiet American, that book is just about a dirty hand scenario facing Fowler, who is the British journalist, dealing with the American Pike, who's an idealist. He has to betray, for those of you who haven't read it and don't want to hear again, fingers and ears, I mean, he has to do this betrayal, he has to get dirty hands, in order to protect people from the terrible consequences of the American, the quiet American's policies. Okay. So read that and you'll get a sense of where the dirty hands, we understand it intuitively. We, 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 we understand the dilemma that these people face. And the moral theories that say that isn't that kind of a dilemma out there don't seem to resonate with us in the, in the way that it should. Okay. You find it in cartoons as well. This is Gary Larson cartoon, very famous. Here's a man, presumably at the gates of hell, and he's being prodded by, presumably the devil or some one of his henchmen, saying, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. That sort, sort of captures what dirty hands are. You've got choice between terrible options, and you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you don't do that kind of thing, the consequences will be terrible. If you do do it, the consequences will be just a little bit less terrible. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. And finally, I think of the pictures I've got up here, you find actual politicians saying this. This man here is uh, Robert S. McNamara. He was the Secretary of Defense under the LB 
J administration in the United States. He was involved in the Vietnam War and, and other things like that. There was a very famous Errol Fulf, Eris Morris uh, documentary, and it's all about the lessons of the fog of war. And lesson nine, he starts off with, he says, in order to do good, you may have to engage in evil. And that for moral theorists is a very worrying thing to say. You really, you really, you really think, wow, you know, that's getting confused. But if you think about the tradition, he's not that far away from the Machiavelli, Machiavellian view that said, if you're going to be a successful prince or leader or ruler, you're going to have to learn how not to be good and use it when that's appropriate. Because the two things that really motivate people, love and fear. Love's very icky, right? Fear works well. And if you want to, you can take that away for nothing, right? If you haven't figured that. If you're a good politician, you're going to have to use fear at some point along the way, some kind of force. And you've got to learn how not to be good. Machiavelli's not saying you should be a dictator or be cruel or anything of that kind. All he's saying is that if you're going to be a successful politician, you're sometimes going to get your hands dirty. Okay. Right. Well, what are the benefits then of a dirty hands analysis? Well, first of all, I think it fits better with our common sense understanding of morality. Why is that important? We've had common sense things about, you know, common sense views of all sorts of things that turned out to be wrong. That's right. People used to think that Zeus used to send thundering bolts, you know, when lightning struck, and that was clearly wrong. Uh, but moral theory is not like physics, right? If our intuitions don't fit with the moral theory, we might need to rethink the moral theory or at least understand why the moral theory is pushing us so far away from our basic instincts and understandings of what's going on there. It's also a fairer and more accurate way to judge politicians who act immorally to bring about lesser evils. We condemn our politicians all the time for doing things like lie. Lying or all that. And most of the time we're right. In fact, I'm pretty sure that 95% of the time we're right. But there are those occasions when they lie because they have to. There was a politician in the 1950s called Sir Stafford Cripps, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he stood up in front of Parliament knowing that the British pound was going off the gold exchange. And he stood up and he said, there is no plans, none. Look at me, I'm an honest man, he said. There are no plans to remove the pound from the gold exchange, knowing full well that was going to happen in the next few days. He lied straight the eyeballs of the rest of Parliament and the country. Why? Because had he told the truth, the policy he was going to use to try and fix up the economics of the country at the time would have failed because of speculators. So he had to lie. So do we condemn him for that? No. Can't condemn him for that. That was his job, his role as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that all the lies told in Parliament or anywhere else are, are legitimate. Far from it. But I'm saying that some are, and we need to be able to distinguish those from those that are just bald-faced lies without any kind of justification at all. And I think it provides a way of thinking about a political morality for politicians. A morality that applies to politicians with their specific roles, with their specific obligations, with the kinds of things that they have to do, which we as private citizens in our personal lives don't have to do. If I don't want to ever lie and the consequences are bad for me, that's fine. If a politician doesn't want to lie and the consequences are bad for you, that's a different story altogether. Right? They've got obligations to you in a way that I don't have obligations to you. Okay. All right. Worries and concerns. I don't want you to get the impression that, that, that what I'm saying to you is hunky-dory and fine, and there aren't any worries or problems about this. Far from it. Critics of it 
have many legitimate and strong points to raise. And I just want to show you that there are some of them that we should think seriously about before we jump to bed with dirty hands theory. First one is that once you start talking about dirty hands and politicians twig that you can get dirty hands legitimately, it's open to terrible abuse. Bad people will say, but I just got dirty hands, right? I had to kill those 15 people, just got dirty hands, right? And it's a very ready-made excuse for people to be highly immoral. That's very worrying. We don't want our theories and our views to be used by unscrupulous people to justify terrible things. So one of two things, we can either decide to drop this all together, but that seems too drastic, let's throw the baby out of the bathwater, or we can try and be absolutely crystal clear about what we mean by dirty hands so that those people who want to use it illegitimately can be called out for doing that. All right, and that's what we try and do in the theory of it while we're working. Secondly, some people argue that it's a slippery slope. Even good people who use dirty hands legitimately, once they've committed a moral crime, it just makes that a little bit easier for you to commit it another time, and another time, and another time. And there you go sliding down that slope until at the end, you're just as bad as every other nasty, vicious politician that's out there. All right. And some people worry that it's just very confusing. What can it possibly mean to be right and wrong at the same time? And this gray area leaves so many unanswered questions. How bad can you be to be good? I mean, if you have to torture one person, is that enough? What about two people? What about 10 people? What about their children? And so it goes on and on and on and on, right? So it opens up areas of massive confusion. And what we don't need is a political theory that tells us, we don't know what the hell you're doing, just get on with it, right? Leaves it open to a serious kind of abuse. All right, so we have serious worries and concerns. And if I had another, oh, I don't know, few months, we could go through each of these and we could talk about them in some kind of detail. Right, so now I want to take you to a real life example. And... Solicit your, in, your, your intuitions about this and where you think it goes. This actually happened in 2002. It's a very grim story. Uh, it happened in Frankfurt in Germany. An 11-year-old boy called Jakob van Metzler, son of a millionaire industrialist, was kidnapped by a law student, a man called Magnus Gufgen. If you're German and I've mispronounced that, I apologize immediately, uh, for ransom. He wanted a million euros. Gaffin was paid the million euros, and when he was paid it, the police observed him picking up the money, and they caught him, brought him in. <clears throat> when they got him into the police station, they interrogated him, and he refused to tell them where he was keeping the boy, Jakob. Just refused. And fearing for Jakob's safety, the deputy chief of police, a man called Wolfgang Daschler, threatened torture unless Gafkin revealed Jakob's location. What he actually said to him is, we are bringing in a specialist who's going to cause you the most amount of pain you've ever felt in your whole life if you don't reveal the whereabouts of Jakob. Just to give you some sense of who we're talking about, that was Jakob there. That was the chief of police, and that's the law student that did the... I'm not quite sure why that makes a difference, but it gives you a face in which you can hang your ideas, right? Okay, so what happened? Well, the threat of torture frightened Gafkin so much that he revealed Jakob's location. But he had already killed Jakob. First of all, he had tied him up and then put tape over his nose and mouth to stop him from screaming. When he no longer moved and suffocated, he took him and he stuck his head in water to make sure he was absolutely dead. So there's no question at all that he murdered Jakob. No question at all. It wasn't a mistake. It was deliberate and all the rest of it. So Gafkin 
was taken to court quite rightly, found guilty of murder and serving a life sentence. What's more interesting is what happened with Dashner. He went to his superior and immediately told his superior that he had threatened torture on Gafkin for not revealing the whereabouts of Yakov. What happened then was he was suspended and charged with abusing his powers, illegally abusing his powers as a police officer by threatening torture uh, against the suspect. Now, bear in mind that this has a specific resonance in Germany because of the Nazi background. Very, very sensitive to any kinds of threats of torture or anything of that kind, quite rightly, because of the, of the background they come from. I mean, everyone should be, but in Germany it's particularly, particularly sensitive. And when it all went through the courts and so on, Dashner was fined 10,800 euros, which was later suspended. He got off lightly because it could have been a 10-year jail sentence for threatening torture. That's how seriously they take it in Germany. What's even more interesting is that Gafkin then, through his lawyer, claimed that his rights had been violated because of the threat of torture against him. He was taken to court, he was taken to court, and then he was eventually asked for something like seven or 8,000 euros. He was eventually awarded 3,000 euros. There was much debate in the German courts about whether they could even run a trial on murder because everything that happened after he had been threatened with torture became inadmissible in the court. So there was a huge debate in, in Germany and uh, much angst on all sides. And as you can imagine, there were groups on either side that were outraged there was the one side that was outraged that police officer could even be, be treated in this way after what he did. And there were other side that were saying, the fact that he threatened torture shows that we're going backwards in our understanding of what's going on. So it was, it was, everyone was unhappy about what was going on here. Isn't this interesting, right? Isn't this interesting? We have here a case of a police officer who did the right thing. Unfortunately, it didn't make any difference, but that shouldn't really matter at this point. He did the right thing and immediately accepted the punishment for acting in that way. The judiciary said to him, you've done the wrong thing, but we understand why, because you did the right thing, right? We're going to fine you, say don't do that ever again, but you don't have to pay it right now, you're going to suspend it. And then the person who was threatened with torture said, hey, but what about my rights? I said, you've got rights too, and we're going to award you something for that. Quite right, we shouldn't have threatened you. So the judiciary said two things. One, it said, Gafkin was right to claim that his rights were violated and to be compensated, but Dashner was also right to try and save the life of the boy by threatening torture. Dirty hands in the judiciary system. There are some articles that you can read in the Metzler case. Um, there's an academic one over here. These are all from the time of the, the newspaper articles at the time. And uh, I'll just leave you with the following questions and then we can chat about it. Was the judge right to find the police chief? Was the judge right to compensate a murderer? I mean, he was a murderer, there's no question of that. Is there an acknowledgement that Dashler's actions were morally justified, yet also wrong? That's an anathema for most moral theorists. It can't possibly be the case that he was wrong and right at the same time. And is this a legal way of acknowledging that we face situations, especially in our public roles, we need to do wrong in order to do right? Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.